Simple Beep, Episode 58, Classic Mac Games. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And it's been a few episodes since we've done any anything on any of our favorite classic Mac games. And we actually have a reason to dive into a deeper catalog this episode, which is that recently, a lot of these games have just gotten a lot easier to play. And we'll get into that in a minute. But as we do with every episode, we have to start with some follow-up. Copyright John Syracuse of 2011. <laughs> Our previous episode was about colorful Apple products. And friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, let us know that we left out a very important product that had its own special color. And that is the 20th anniversary Macintosh, which had uh, bronze elements, specifically the kind of main area under the integrated display where the vertical CD drive was, uh, and the big subwoofer unit were both bronze, kind of like the Lombard PowerBook G3's keyboard. The rest of the unit was uh, different shades of darker gray, but it was worth noting that the 20th anniversary Mac came, or pieces of it came in bronze. That was one that I was actually looking at as we were putting together that episode. And I don't know if it's the color itself or the plastics that were used and whether they have perhaps not aged well, but I was looking at pictures of the 20th anniversary Macintosh and going, I'm not sure what color that is. Is it just gray or does it have some fancier color to it? Um, in my mind, I always screw it up with those uh, frog design machines that we talked about a few episodes ago. Like in my brain, it's mushed together where the 20th anniversary Mac is actually green, but it's not. It's bronze. Although I suppose if it was made of real bronze, it would eventually <laughs> turn green. <laughs> One other thing we talked about a few episodes ago about colors on on Macs and on other devices was the colorware iPhones that you could get to have a uh, Snow White design language for your iPhone if you were willing to drop about 1900 bucks on a new iPhone. If some spending more like $19 is your speed, we did get a link to a retro Mac iPhone skin, which actually sells for the extremely appropriate price of $19.84, that gives you a very similar look if you're willing to just do a little skinning of your own and certainly will not break the bank in the same way. <laughs> One uh, final piece of follow-up for something that we've touched on multiple times in the past. We talked about the uh, Kickstarter for the uh, notepads that had the save and cancel buttons from Classic Mac OS on them and mine arrived, which it, hooray, a Kickstarter that arrived. <laughs> so kudos to the creator of that project who actually came through on it. And it really came through in some really great packaging. I took some photos of those and I'll make sure to put those in the show notes. And uh, I'm not sure if I put those on Twitter yet or not, but they'll definitely be in the notes. And if you missed out on the Kickstarter, I think that there has been definitely some interest in continuing this product line, perhaps different sizes of sticky notes or note cards or something. So uh, go ahead and follow the link to the Kickstarter and get in touch with the creator there if you think that you would want some more of these or if you missed out on it and you want a notepad of your very own in the future. Finally, a little piece of follow-up that's also a little bit of news in our community. Uh, when we were talking about our behind-the-show episode one of the resources we use is YouTube for lots of old commercials or keynotes to get 
uh, audio, certainly that we can drop into the show or just to watch to learn what happened. And one of these major sources, the Every Apple Video channel was shut down since we last recorded. And a couple channels have sprung up uh, in the wake of this shutdown to try and put some of these resources back up or different niches, like there's one for just commercials. And some are in various stages of being taken down just as quickly as they're put up or some stay up for longer than others. But uh, if you have YouTube-DL, which we also have talked about, uh, you might want to break it out to save some of these for yourselves. And as of this recording, the Every Steve Jobs Video channel is still up. Yeah, I wonder what triggered the takedown of every every Apple video, because it either would have had to come from Apple or they would have had to have put some other related content on there that someone else could have made a claim on. And you know, I, I do hope that every Steve Jobs video keeps on going for a long time. And I know that there are some offline copies of it. So, you know, no matter what happens, it's just going to be one of those games of uh, copyright whack-a-mole where this stuff will always be available, whether it's in a nice stable repository or not. But I think that something like every Steve Jobs video, one of the things about it is that it's at this point purely historic. And I don't know to what extent every Apple video was continuing and putting up like recent keynotes. And I can see where, you know, Apple would not want someone else's YouTube channel to be posting a full HD copy of like 2017 WWDC keynote and perhaps putting ads on it like the day after it airs. That totally makes sense to me. And then if they happen to have a whole bunch of historic videos that were also part of the channel, you know, they're collateral damage at that point. Whereas I think for the moment, every Steve Jobs video but there was a little bit of a scare there because their domain went down for a while, but uh, they seem to be fully back. And But their content is all purely historic. Yes, like Apple owns copyright on a large portion of that, but it's not the kind of thing that they stand to really protect in uh, in an active way. And so I hope that that will continue. And I think that leads into what we're actually going to talk about today, which is something that would not exist if Apple was being really, uh, really gung-ho about protecting their intellectual property all the way back to the beginning of time. Because what we're going to talk about today is the fact that something that went around not just the like classic Mac community, but pretty much like every Apple podcast that I listened to made at least some mention of this. Every Apple site was kind of impressed. Uh, and perhaps surprised that this exists, but the Internet Archive has added in-browser emulation of System 6 and System 7, and they've put up a pretty significant software repository that goes along with this. So, of course, Apple's intellectual property stake in this is in the operating system itself, and then also a couple of the applications that went along with it. So, for example, you can now like you used to be able to already go in and emulate a DOSBox or emulate an Apple II and use some software there, you can go in and have an in-browser, very tiny little window. Uh, you know, it's a 512-pixel window, exactly. Um, you can go in there, and just within a matter of seconds, it loads up this emulator. And part of the stages of loading up the emulator, you know, it says it's loading the ROM file, and then it's loading the disks that are involved. And 
in the past, it's been those ROM files that Apple has gone after and made sure that people take them down from their websites. One thing that I think is on the Internet Archive side, one, yes, this is total abandonware. System 6 and System 7 are you know, preserving them as a curiosity is if anything, in Apple's interest. It, you know, it brings up these positive feelings of nostalgia that we all have and doesn't harm their current business in any way, shape, or form. And then the other thing with the ROMs, um, especially with things you know, that are PowerPC ROMs or even 68K ROMs, you know, multiple architectures ago, Apple was really vigilant about taking these down, not letting people distribute them and use them for the basis of their own emulation in the past. But one, they've kind of stopped doing that. They've gone a little bit more lax. And two, the way that it's done in the in-browser emulation, it says loading ROM file, but you have absolutely no access to that file itself. You just see the output of the emulation. So I think that this is safe. I wouldn't say that it has Apple's overt blessing, but I think that their lack of any kind of you know, action against the Internet Archive is both telling and, of course, welcome for us. Maybe this goes without saying, but you really should access this on a full computer, a laptop or a desktop. The emulator will load on an iOS device, for example, but the like even on top of the layers of abstraction with emulation, translating touch events into clicks versus drags is really just not <laughs> something that's entirely there yet. And I don't think like the keyboard isn't accessible at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even like me running screens on my iPad where when I need the keyboard, I can pop it up and it covers three quarters of the screen and makes the rest of the screen totally unusable. But I have a proper software keyboard. Um, all you're going to be able to do is kind of tap around. And uh, that's not particularly helpful. <laughs> so like I said, the archive that's gone up, I think it's got about 80 titles in it. And the vast majority of them are games. And so we're going to run through some of the games that you might be more familiar with quickly and then get into the ones that are really like emblematic of early Mac gaming. We're talking from like 1984 to 1990, 91. So some of these games that had success not only on the Mac, but many other platforms include Lemmings and uh, I guess the sequel, Oh No, More Lemmings. I think the last time that I actually played Lemmings was in a different in-browser emulator. So I didn't load up this version, but the one that I'm used to has sort of the chunky color graphics. And I'm sure that I know that that's available somewhere in browser on the internet. And Lemmings is still great. A game that kind of looked similar, had a similar mechanic, was a Load Runner, where you've kind of got your, your scene and your guy running around. Uh, digging through levels or setting traps to evade monks. There's also Rogue, a Mac port that I think came out of the... Uh, it was originally for Unix, right? Because it was just a bunch of ASCII symbols to to do like the, the text dungeon adventure. Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about Rogue. Of, of course, there's an entire category of games that take their name from it, the Roguelikes. And uh, if you're interested in Rogue and Roguelikes, I know that last year... There was an event called the Roguelike Festival, where they basically had an entire conference around it, and we'll link to that. And I saw on Twitter just today, as we were recording this, that the people who organized that are trying to do a second round of that event. So definitely a game that uh, has lasted 
you know, has a, had a lasting legacy to today, both people going back and playing the original and then just the entire category of games that it spawned. So yeah, so if you want to play the early version uh, for the Mac, it's here on the Internet Archive. There's also an official port of Frogger brought to you by Sierra Online, who also brought us like King's Quest and Space Quest, etc. And Frogger, of course, started in the arcade. Yes, of course. There's also the Mac version of Oregon Trail, which I loaded up just enough to see the splash screen and go, this is blasphemy because the canonical version of the Oregon Trail is only the Apple II version. Yes, definitely. I had an even later version of Oregon Trail for the Mac. I think, I don't know, at some point, I think they had a title that was called Oregon Trail 2, but there were also versions that were just called Oregon Trail, even though they completely replaced the entire gameplay. Um, so there was a color version that came on CD later for the Mac. This is black and white version. Um, but like I said, my, my heart is with the uh, only the Apple II version. And then there are some really big names like Sid Meier's Civilization and uh, an early version of Microsoft's Flight Simulator, which definitely both went on to have many more versions on uh, certainly Windows as well as other platforms. But now we'd like to talk about some games here in the Internet Archive emulating section that either got their start or remained exclusive to the Mac. And uh, again, you can go and play these in your browser, uh, or if you are getting into emulation or have classic hardware, most if not all of these are also available at places like the Macintosh Garden, which we've discussed in previous episodes. So you can play along if hearing about them makes you remember the good old days or if uh, you never got to play them in the first place. There are definitely some on this list that we had never played, and that was kind of fun. (laughs) The first one I want to talk about is Crystal Quest, which I did have a copy of on floppies and spent a lot of time playing uh, like in the early to mid-90s. It's a basic game where uh, there's a field... And you, uh, you use the mouse to move your ship around as if the ship were your cursor. And you have to uh, run over the crystals, avoid the baddies. You can shoot as a kind of asteroids or maelstrom way. And then once all the crystals have been gathered, you go through a portal at the bottom of the screen and move on to the next level. So I played Crystal Quest for the first time yesterday. <laughs> and... I really enjoyed it. I was not particularly good at it, but I saw how I could become good at it in the future. It's a really great game because it has a really simple concept that's hard to master. So the way, you said like you move your ship around like the cursor, except you move your ship around with the cursor. It's like a key distinction. So your cursor position basically adds thrust to the ship. So, like, if you move to the left of center, your ship is going to get leftward thrust. And it's, like, it's a little hard to describe, but it's not just, like, you moving the mouse pointer. You have to basically give instructions to the ship that will then send it in the appropriate direction. And the thing is, like, there's an invisible origin point dead center in the screen, and unless your brain, like, gets very in tune to that, and you're kind of watching it out of the corner of your eye... It's really hard for you to tell like you can you can get in a position where you think you're in control of the ship and then you've like veered your mouse a little bit too far in one direction and suddenly you're just in a corner of the screen and you have to adjust for that. And also, it's like a typical 
top-down spaceship game, you know, like an Asteroids or Maelstrom, where you have a ship and there are baddies and you can shoot at them. But the the strange mechanic in Crystal Quest is, and it says this in the help documentation that's contained within the game, is that your ship shoots in the direction that it's going. But your ship is a circle that has absolutely no, like it doesn't rotate. It's just a circle that glides. So you don't actually have a visual representation of which way your ship is going unless it's like in your mind or if you're just shooting constantly. So it's kind of like, it's one of those things, like like I said, I feel like I could get used to this mechanic, but in just, you know, a day's worth of playing, my brain has not created the pathways that would make me a Crystal Quest master. I wouldn't say I ever became a master of playing this as a kid, because like you just said, my strategy was to always be shooting. <laughs> and And that's how I got through most of the levels. But where the game had staying power for me is that the copy that we had on floppies and i think the copy available in the macintosh garden came with an app called the critter editor and this was like a a version of res edit specifically made for crystal quest where you could reskin the game make up your own sprites for your ship for the various types of baddies for the gate at the bottom or the portals that the baddies come out of uh mess with some of the game mechanics and some variables and add your own sounds. And I spent, you know, countless after school hours coming up with my own versions of Crystal Quest. And I think more than once passing them off to my family as look at this game I made. It was so cool to be able to do that. And um, even despite the fact that a lot of the first party resources that the game ships with or the kind of like demo pack of, of uh, how things could be customized have a lot of fun character to them. The sound effects uh, made me laugh, certainly. Um, I think like the when you go through the gate at the bottom, at least in the version we had at uh, at our house growing up, it was like a baby making a cooing noise. <gasps> the version that I got uh, had, it made a much more sexual noise when you go through the gate at the bottom. <laughs> Which also reminded me of Maelstrom and some of the early Ambrosia games where this was just kind of a mainstay of arcade games at the time. It was like, we can do sampled sounds and they would just, they would just throw these in, you know, presumably to, uh, to get the attention of teenage boys. The other sound effects though, I think they were highly praised at the time because this game was released in what, 88, something like that. Uh, so the sampled sound effects were considered very high quality. The, the pixel art was high quality and the gameplay was unique and you know allowed some opportunity for improvement and mastery and in keeping with the character of some of these sound effects and uh some of the art uh as we have here in our show notes the language in their help and kind of like introduction is full of character as well oh yeah it has an attitude uh (laughs) so just telling you what the basic key commands in the game or menu commands in the game are because this was the kind of internal help documentation that you would put in games of this sort. You know, it's obviously these were working in small resource and file size constraints to fit on, you know, possibly 800k floppy disks. And so the game itself is just, you know, there's one screen that is the game itself. 
and you go through wave after wave, you know, what the levels are called. But the view in that is the same. You always have the top-down view, crystals to collect, portals, exit. And so where else can you, you know, tell some story or add something to this game? It's all in the sort of help documentation that are the other five screens that exist in the game. So going through just like the keyboard commands tells you one thing it tells you, command A aborts the current game. This is especially useful when you use it on somebody else who is about to beat your high score. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are all these creative names for the the characters. And I think this is another one of the things because this is an like this is an extremely challenging game to get past the first few levels. You know, you need to build up some skill. And if you're just like, oh, well, there's like one type of enemy and they come out of the thing and they always kill me. This game is dumb. You don't want that to be the case. So what they've done is they've done like the whole rogues gallery of all of the enemies that could appear throughout the game. So you have some incentive to progress to higher levels just to see these characters. You know, there's a still sprite of them, but just like to see them in action. Oh, what sound does that character make? Oh, how is that character animated or how does it behave? Like you have some incentive to, you know, what otherwise would just be kind of like a pointless grind. You have some goal, especially because they've given so much like life and attitude to these. They all have like, they all have crazy names and, uh, you know, some description of what, you know, how they will kill you mercilessly. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the uh, the descriptions of all the troggles and number munchers. Like they all got their Latin classification name and their personality. And a very similar thing is going on here in Crystal Quest. Absolutely. Except there's like 20 of them. And then at the very bottom, it just says, stay cool at all times. Uncool dudes get stomped on. Yeah. So yes, Crystal Quest, a Mac original. It did get uh, ported to other systems. There were later versions for the Mac, even for Windows, I think. And I think the most recent iteration is that there's one on uh, that there's a downloadable version for I think the Xbox One, and I saw a little bit of footage of that. The gameplay is essentially the same. the The artwork is all redone, and one of the things that they added is that there's a trail behind the ship, so you actually can tell which direction you're going. Another game I want to talk about is Phrase Craze Plus, and this was a shareware game. Uh, basically Wheel of Fortune that you can play on your Mac. And uh, this stuck out to me because uh, our family computer for a long time was a Mac 2. It only had 800K floppy drives. And uh, it didn't have internet access. It didn't have like much outside access to the world. But every once in a while, my dad would get these floppies full of like 100K each little black and white games. So a lot of the games that I played, like Crystal Quest was the big blockbuster game that we bought at Micro Center and it came in a box. A lot of the games that I grew up playing were these little, like kind of bundled uh, black and white apps. And I spent a lot of time on Phrase Craze Plus because I was a big fan of Wheel of Fortune. I still am a big fan of Wheel of Fortune. I look at this type of game and it's now with looking back retrospectively, I look at them and I go, is that a hypercard stack? Or is it not? And, you know, many of these are not. They're standalone apps. But knowing, you know, knowing the trajectory of Hypercard all the way up into a full-fledged game like Myst, we could, you know, we can see that many of these games could have been programmed in Hypercard whether they were or not. But that's the exact genre that I think of here. And Phrase Craze Plus is 
the best Wheel of Fortune game from this era that I played. And I played a bunch of them. Uh, one standout is a game that's simply called Wheel, which is not available on the Internet Archive, but is available on the Macintosh Garden. Uh, Wheel, of course, is going after <laughs> the the actual name of the, the game property that it's copying. And it was a way poor user experience and didn't really have much, uh, if anything, in the way of graphics. Phrase Craze Plus has little Pat Sajaks and Vanna White characters, and the game mechanic's really good. So I think it's definitely worth your time to play a game or two on the Internet Archive. The next game that I want to talk about is actually in a couple of places on the Internet Archive's compilation here, and it's a game called Shuffle Puck. And there's one where it's just standalone, and it's also part of the most popular, most frequently clicked on package in the emulation archive, which is just like a System 7 compilation. And Shuffle Puck is essentially, to characterize it as you would at the time, it's a 3D air hockey game. You know, it's in perspective view, you're at your one end of the table, you have a paddle that moves around, and you it has, you know... It has physics where, depending on how hard you strike the puck and in what direction, you can make different types of shots. And the original version of Shuffle Puck, which is on in the in-browser emulation, is just called Shuffle Puck, and it's just you versus a faceless paddle at the other end. So it's like, hey, we took Pong and we made it 3D. You know, you versus computer at the other end, get the puck past them. One of the things that you know was great about Shuffle Puck was it's high resolution for the time graphics and some of the sound and visual effects it had. So whenever you got the puck past someone and hit the end at the other side, unlike, you know, like a, like a table hockey thing uh, or an air hockey thing, it doesn't just like go in and go bloop bloop. It, when it hits, it has like a shatter effect and a uh, little, you know, little glass breaking ripples come out. So the in-browser version is the original Shuffle Puck, but the game, I think, as I knew it, was called Shuffle Puck Cafe. And this introduced a cast of characters, and it brought the computer AI to life a little bit more by animating them with these different characters. And in the original Shuffle Puck, you could go to the menus and control the parameters of the opponent AI. How fast are they? How smart are they? Do they anticipate your shots? How big is their paddle? How quickly can they move? That kind of thing. Or, you know, like how much strength do they have that they can put behind a shot? So you could customize your opponent so you could make them like really slow and dumb and beat them every time. Or you could, you know, tune them up to your ability. Or you could make them just basically, you know, godly such that whenever they got the chance to serve, they always aced you every time. Um... But Shuffle Puck Cafe put all of those, you know, took those different permutations and put them onto several characters. And then the way that you played was the main screen of the game was the cafe, where there's the air hockey table and all of these unsavories lurking around it. And you would you would click on any one of you know, it's it's like uh it's like the Star Wars Cantina has an air hockey table. Yeah. <laughs> because they're not human characters. Like, there's a robot and there are alien things. There's a guy who looks like a warthog. There's a woman who is like the, a queen of something. And you would choose your opponent and then you would play against them. And uh, it also added some 
more robust scorekeeping. The original just had these like little blocks that kept score. And then in Shuffle Puck Cafe, there was this animated robot arm that would come in from the side and draw a chalk mark for every time that you scored. And you could play in like a tournament mode where uh, like a fighting game, you would try to beat every single character in succession. And it added a lot of character to the game and also took it off of the user to have, you know, you didn't have to do the customization to get the replay value out of it. I did not play Shuffle Puck during its heyday. Um, I think I played it maybe when we started this podcast and and a lot of like going back and finding things uh, to run on classic hardware. Um, But I hadn't played it for a while until uh, preparing for this episode. And it like it holds up. It is like you said, it's like 3D Pong. But to imagine what it would have been like to have the smooth frame rates and extensive customization possibilities uh like i can this would have been like a a top tier game in the 80s yeah and i think it was eventually shuffle puck cafe was distributed by broderbund whereas the original was just a shareware title so i think i was probably stuck on the original most of the time (laughs) (laughs) speaking of shareware titles here's one that i had not heard of but has a really great tie-in to mac history there is a game on here called Mac Missiles, and they misspelled missiles, but that's okay. <laughs> and all this is, is it's a Macintosh port slash clone. Well, it's a clone. It's not an official port of the arcade game or Atari game Missile Command, where you are defending from a barrage of incoming missiles against your city and uh, missile installations. The thing about this game, though, is that even while you are playing the game, it proudly touts its author, one Avadis Tavanian Jr., who you may know as Avi Tavanian, who was uh, a longtime Apple guy, started at Next, uh, eventually became the vice president of software engineering at Apple from 1997 to 2006, and was a good friend of Steve Jobs. But at the time that this was released, he was basically... I'm guessing he was like in college or grad school and doing some programming projects on the side. And he released this shareware clone of Missile Command. But I I cannot get over the fact that it has just like incredibly heavy use of the Chicago font and also the built-in macOS font features like the the outline and shadow text. Yeah. (laughs) And then I still can't get over the fact that it has his name and copyright at the top of the screen while you play. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not like on an info screen or even title screen. And then there's the shareware page if you, you know, click the about button. And it says that it's shareware, pay what you would like. But if you like it, uh, perhaps send $10 to Avi Tavanian, who certainly doesn't need the money anymore. And it's kind of fun to think that that was the going rate for a clone of Missile Command in the late 80s, given that we won't pay anything for software these days. Also, this was another game that I was that in emulation I was bad at. My cities got destroyed all the time. I must be missing something in the strategy. And maybe we'll talk more about this as the episode goes on, but you have to believe that in some of these, like lost in the layer of emulation, there might be like frame drops or or something where, especially in in these games where timing is crucial, uh, you might just not be able to have the same reflexes and reactions as if you were playing it natively on the hardware it was designed for. 
yeah, I was getting destroyed in Shufflepuck, and I could tell it was because of frame lag. And this is a problem with emulation, and sometimes just with hardware, no matter where you are. So, like, with Shufflepuck, like, it's, like, double layer. So I've got a Bluetooth mouse going to an in-browser emulator. The odds of getting exact frame performance there are zero. So, you know, I downloaded Shufflepuck Cafe, and I was running it in Sheep Shaver. It was a little bit better. I think that, you know, really to get the best performance out of this, this is where Mini VMAC comes in um, because it's going to be the most bare bones emulator and perhaps give you the best performance. I haven't got, gotten around to trying that, but that's one of the things here. And I was actually just talking on Twitter today. Uh, I was listening to Rocket last week and they were talking about uh, Brianna Wu is building a Raspberry Pi SNES emulator and she's flashing all of her own ROMs and and getting it all set up and I asked her how is it doing on the frame rate like frame exact timing performance and she's like uh it's a little bit hit and miss because I have this problem because I have a actual SNES that I loved to play and when I moved a couple of years ago I got rid of my CRT TV because I'm like this is this is garbage I can still hook these things up to an HD TV but the input lag is so bad that especially some of my favorite games, puzzle games, where you needed 60th of a second, per, you needed exact frame timing to do really well at these games. And it's just out the window. So that is one of the things that, you know, even if you can get the overall experience of these games, you may not get the exact level of experience. Even though we have such vastly power, more powerful hardware, you would think that we could tune it up exactly right so that we could get that same level, but it's typically not there in emulation. I think the next game also suffers from this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The next game I want to talk about is Brickles, a shareware breakout uh, clone. And there are a bunch of versions of Brickles that were released, and I didn't realize how many there were. So uh, skipping over the Internet Archive for a little bit and going to the Macintosh Garden... Uh, there are a bunch of normal Brickles versions. I think uh, they go all the way up to seven or eight. There's Brickles Plus, which is, has color. There's Brickles Pro, which adds something else. There's Brickles Deluxe, where you can have paddles on the top or paddles on the sides. And I think we might have just had Brickles Plus on our computer growing up. But in any case, the version on the Internet Archive is a simple black and white breakout clone. Uh, but yes, going back to what we were just talking about, I played Brickle. I got a copy of Brickles off of the Macintosh Garden and was running it on my iBook G3, where it is impossible. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that the difficulty and like the speed at which the ball moves around the screen is synchronized to CPU cycles. Is I, I'm pretty sure. So uh, it was designed to run on 68K Max you know, a, a Mac plus or maybe an O20 or an O30. Uh, and it is running on a maybe 600 megahertz G3 and it is just impossible. <laughs> uh, so this is one of those that definitely benefits from being fully emulated. And uh, I think it, the internet archive may even be using mini VMAC because I think the title of the web page when it's booting says something about a Mac plus. So I think it, it, it may all be uh, synchronized in that way. So definitely do it online instead of trying to do it native if you've got uh, hardware towards the more modern end of the classic Mac. 
I've got another related game here that I remembered fondly and couldn't come up with the name of and then did some furious Googling and found it, not on the Internet Archive emulation, but the game is called Shatterball. And this game is like, this is a combination of Shufflepuck and Brickles or a Breakout clone. So you have a 3D tunnel that you're looking down with a back wall and and the 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 bricks that you have to break slide in with this large industrial sliding noise and animation and then your paddle has like no influence over the direction of the ball but when it comes back to you you're able to catch it a limited number of times and then throw it down the tunnel and every level has different gravity and like different effects on the way that the ball bounces off the walls if you get the ball all the way back to the far back wall, there's this kind of shifting, uh, these shifting rectangular patterns on the back wall. If you hit them, you can get like an extra life or a power up that comes back to you. And I remember just spending tons and tons and tons of time on this game. And I don't know, maybe my attention span is not what it was when I was a kid. Um, I played a few levels, but I can see again where the appeal in going through this over and over and over again was because for every level there was a timer and you could set a high score by beating it in a quicker time. So you could figure out the optimal way, you know, like how do I get it back into the back so that it clears all the blocks by itself and I don't have to make a whole lot of hits uh, and just you know, keep going and iterating on that. Uh, you could also try to play through all 24 stages in order uh, to get a different type of high score. That was a fun game. Uh, and it was it was one of those ones where uh, I guess it defaulted to black and white. Or then I got a message when I opened it up in the emulator that said, if you want to play this game in color, you have to go to 16 colors. And fortunately, Sheepshaver let me do that. So it has a uh, beautiful 16 color dithered palette as well. Yeah, I played a version of this, not Shatterball, but Diamonds 3D, but it's the same mechanic all the way down to like mechanical uh, effects for when <laughs> new blocks were coming in. But yeah, that's it's a lot of fun. So maybe Shatterball is actually a clone. I don't know which preceded each other. I bet Shatterball came first because I don't think Diamonds 3D ever had a like a nice 512 pixel wide black and white version. <laughs> So we've, we've saved it till now. Uh, we haven't talked about the most popular game yet on the Internet Archive collection. So this is number two overall, that System 7 collection that has uh, a whole bunch of apps like uh, MacWrite, MacPaint, ResEdit. Like HyperCard. And HyperCard, a few other games in there. Shufflepuck is in that one for some reason. That's the most clicked on. But the most clicked on individual game is Dark Castle. I have in all caps in our notes here, we are bad at this game. <laughs> unable to proceed uh, beyond the first room <laughs> yeah so i i had probably heard of dark castle but i had certainly never played it uh and i thought okay this is great i'm gonna go in and give this classic game a try people were raving oh i can finally play dark castle again uh on that same episode of rocket they had Glenn Fleischman on as a guest and he tells a story that we'll give an overcast link to where he says that when he was in college, it was right when Dark Castle came out, and one of his friends gave him a copy of it on a disc like the week before finals, and he almost failed out of school <laughs> <laughs> because he just like had to play it until he beat the entire game. I was so bad at this game, though, 
that I was thinking that if my other option was to study for finals, this would drive me to the books faster. But yeah, you have the next line down in our notes is you see why it was good for the time. Uh, obviously, the gameplay, once you get a hang of it, uh, is rewarding. But it's it's what do you what do we call these? They're not totally side scrollers, but it's kind of like that view. And there are lots of uh, baddies and it's sprite based. It's a classic side scrolling castle game. Kind of kind of in the mode of, you know, a Castlevania or something like that. That's right. Yeah. But in Dark Castle, each screen is static. So you have the entrance and the exit and the obstacles and enemies laid out before you and you have to navigate them. That's the impossible part. <laughs> so the notion is that you're you're going into the castle to to take down the Black Knight. And to do that, you have to crawl through some of the dungeons to get the power-ups so that you can then go eventually face him. Or you can go face him straight away, and they say, if you do that without getting you know, the fireballs and the shield and this and that, you will die. Well, I found that you would die anyway. You know, they, this also has the, the list of like all the baddies that you will encounter. Rats. Rats, they will kill you. Bats, they will kill you. <laughs> so I don't know if the controls were bad or if I was just bad. The frame rate seemed pretty good in the browser emulation. Uh, nothing seemed to be stuttering at all. Uh, but the graphics were really good. The sprite animation, you know, had a lot of attention to detail. The sounds were creative. Mm -hmm. They're funny. You'll fall off a ledge and be in like a stunned mode so enemies can come up and kill you. <laughs> or if you uh, pick up inventory, it's like, yay! Yeah. And the things you can pick up for your inventory are more rocks to throw at baddies. I couldn't get that. That's where, like, you know, there are bats flying around or there are rats on the floor. And there's a, like, you can throw straight ahead, which, you know, by the time I finally got to, like, uh, another humanoid night creature, that was fine because I could hit those. Uh, but, like, the bats or the rats, no. <laughs> right, because you, you have to move your character with the keyboard and then aim and, and throw rocks with the mouse. And unlike something like Crystal Quest, where the mouse pointer stays visible, or this kind of like throwing mechanic, the other thing that I thought of was something like uh, Yoshi's Island, where to aim, you have this little like aiming reticule that goes back and forward relative to your character and shows you what direction you're going to aim in. But the way that Dark Castle is set up is that they didn't want it, you know, there there are some like status displays, inventory at the bottom of the screen that tells you which level you're on and how many lives you have. But everything within the scene itself only depicts what is in the scene. There's no kind of additional interface on top of that. So to show what direction you're going to throw the rock in, your character's arm moves up and down in in this kind of strange fascist salute. <laughs> motion as opposed to like nobody lines up to throw in that direction like you don't take the the rock or the ball in your hand and like put it out at a 30 degree angle to indicate that that's how you're <laughs> gonna throw it but it's just like it was like the only visual means for showing that um but you have to manage that and the fact that a rat is at your feet and it's gonna kill you there's one level where um, there's just like a little lip in the floor. Like it's maybe like eight pixels. And if you run over it, you fall and an enemy immediately kills you. You have to jump over this like tiny little downward lip in the floor. <laughs> so I felt like 
I just felt like the difficulty level, and I was playing on beginner mode. There's beginner, intermediate, and advanced. I was playing on beginner mode, and I felt like it was just like it was a, it was so far against me that I didn't want to continue. Had a similar experience. So this was a very early Mac game, and you know, was certainly the premier. Sounds like was the premier arcade title for the Mac at the time of its release. And also went on to have some other success. It was eventually ported to basically every platform imaginable. It went to things like, you know, the Atari and DOS and the Amiga and the Commodore 64 and all of the other you know, microcomputers of the era and also made its way onto TV based consoles. There's some footage on YouTube. I resorted to going and looking for footage of the Mac version on YouTube to see if you know, what the other screens of the game looked like and how one could actually succeed at it. <laughs> um, and there was some footage of the Genesis, Sega Genesis version, which I think greatly suffered for the transition to lower resolution and the demand for color. And the whole game just kind of looks muddy. Like, all of the... The only thing that's, like, bringing you the character of the game is the sounds, which didn't change. But everything else just looks like it, it looks like a cut-rate platformer, whereas on the Mac, it looks sharp and it looks good. So that wraps up the games that are in the new Internet Archive collection. Of course, we hope that they'll continue adding to this collection. You know, they've, they've set up the infrastructure for it, and now it's just a question of getting titles in there that they think are appropriate and representative and won't spark angry legal notices. <laughs> um, but... Since we got into this, since we started going and finding some other titles and bringing them into emulators on our own computer, we want to mention a couple other titles that really stood out to us as like, these were the same games that we were playing alongside these other titles that we remembered, or, you know, even in the same era of games that we hadn't played until recently. And the first one we'd like to talk about is Cosmic Osmo. And this was a game, it's sometimes referred to as like a software toy uh, from Cyan, the people who would go on to release Myst, Riven, and that whole long uh, series of games. And uh, it's kind of similar in that you're exploring an unfamiliar world and uh, it's built in HyperCard. But one of the things that ties Cosmic Osmo more to this era of games is that it is purely black and white. And it looks like a HyperCard stack that anyone could have made uh, with their own copy of HyperCard if you had the drawing and animation talents of Rand and Robin Miller. Uh, the thing that separates Cosmic Osmo from something like, say, Mist, is that it's really just more of open-world exploration without goals or a story to conclude. And it's, in that way, it can be a game that never ends. And this is something that I found out uh, when I started playing it for the first time in preparation for this episode i kind of got frustrated i was like oh is there is there anything i have to be doing or i'm just uh going around as one of these osmos in my spaceship to i think up to seven different planets that just have a bunch of little fun animations and rooms sound effects to click on and reveal as you explore there were three games uh, or software toys that Cyan made um, all around the same time. Cosmic Osmo was the second. It was preceded by The Manhole. And then the third one was Spelunks. 
And uh, Cosmic Osmo was always the one that I heard about, uh, but never played back then. And I think it's the one that kind of persists to this day, even though it might be offered on good old games or Steam. It's still the like classic one bit uh, click to progress hyper card mechanic. The others have been remastered. And while I think they fared a little better than Dark Castle, uh, it kind of takes away from that original flavor of like the kind of dithered bitmap graphics. So Cosmic Osmo definitely gets our nomination for a game that, uh, you know, legality pending uh, could go into <laughs> the Internet Archives emulation library. Right, because this is a title that is still for sale in some places. So, uh, Brian, you just mentioned to me recently that Cyan's most recent game uh, came out just a week or so ago called Abduction. O-B-D-U-C-T-I-O-N, and is available on Steam and elsewhere. And as I was looking at it on Steam, I haven't bought it yet, but I put it on my Steam wish list. And it said, you know, other titles from this publisher, and there's a bundle on Steam called the Cyan Collection. It sells for like 70 bucks, and it has Abduction, five different Myst games, and then the Cyan Children's Pack, which sells by itself for six bucks, and it's those three games that you just mentioned. The irony here is that Abduction and Real Mist are the only two things in the Steam collection that run on the Mac. The rest are Windows only. That's a bummer. <laughs> that is a bummer, especially given their pedigree for that Cyan Children's Pack. Like, how, how did that happen? How did your HyperCard stat get ported to Windows in such a way that it cannot be recovered? But there's a uh, playing through Cosmic Osmo again, you know, like, there's no real set endpoints. So you can just keep playing and exploring and finding new things, new little easter eggs almost that was the thing that i remember of playing it as a kid i didn't have a copy of it but i remember playing it at i think family friend's house and the first point that i realized i had gone in a loop i'm like wait a minute is there a way out of this (laughs) do i win and the answer is you win by playing there's a lot in there that reminded me of playing mist like for example the way that they animate elevators is that you're kind of looking at the front door of an elevator with a little porthole through which there's a very simple animation that simulates uh, moving up or moving down. Or there are some mine carts that are a lot like one of the mine carts that you use to get between islands and Riven. And I think even some of the sound effects and background noises might have appeared you know, completely unchanged in Mist. And speaking of Mist, there was an area on one of the planets that had a room that had definitely a like classic style Mac, original Mac or a plus or an SE. And on its screen are two copies of definitely the original Mist application icon. So I wonder if that was, again, like another asset that they just reused later or um, like a fun Easter egg preview of the the next big thing that they were working on. And there's a YouTube playthrough, I say in air quotes, of Cosmic Osmo that will link to uh, timestamped to a point where you can see this Easter egg. One other game that I wanted to share that's not in the gallery is the one that if you asked me, what would you put in the Internet Archive as a prototypical black and white Macintosh game? My pick would definitely be Glider. It's a unique game. The premise of the game is that you have a series of rooms and your character is a paper airplane, a glider, that when you start at the when you start the game, there's a little folding animation and noise that shows you like the steps that the, the paper airplane is made out of and tells you how many lives you have left. And then your goal, like 
any good side-scrolling game is to move from the left side to the right of the room. And to do that, you have to use the things in the room, particularly air vents that will push you up towards the top of the screen. And then you have to avoid, you have to glide your way through and avoid obstacles to get to the next room. There's a, a perhaps overly involved YouTube commentary that runs through a lot of this that goes through some of the history of the game, some of the later versions, and really like in painstaking detail walks through like the strategy and the level design and how it teaches you the different things that you have to be aware of in the game to succeed. But this is definitely one of my all-time favorites. When you're building a game that goes into a floppy that only has a certain amount of code and a certain amount of assets that can go with it, bitmap assets, they kind of pour every, you know, pour over every pixel of the scene to make it as interesting and engaging as possible while also still being clear. So in the first room that's like just, you know, like etched into my memory, there's a doorway and then there's like, there's like a woman in a dress in the background that you can see like through this doorway. And then there are just the two simple tables that are your obstacles that you have to go through. In like room three, there's a guitar. And then, you know, things start to change as you move through the different rooms in the house. There's some like creepy details in there that I had not noticed before that like in some of the later rooms, there's like, you know, there'll be like cracks in the wall and stuff like that. But then there's one room where there's like a bunch of papers on the floor and then what looks like handcuffs peeking out from underneath them. Like, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there. But the gameplay is really solid. Uh, one of the interesting things about Glider, one of those things that I don't think we would expect in a game today is like, there's a menu command that says like, how many lives would you like to start at the beginning of the game? And I think it limits you to be between like two and six, but like six, please. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's also a thing that lets you say, what room do you want to start in one through nine? And the funny thing is that the entire game, all of the levels of the game are, there are 15 rooms. That's it. Um, and so you're like, well, if I started on level nine, room nine with six lives, surely I would beat the game. It's like, well, yes, you know, you probably can beat the game from there. But the thing is, again, the mechanic that keeps you going in a game like Glider is the ability to get a high score. And you get a high score by going through the game quickly. It doesn't tell you this necessarily. You have to kind of figure it out implicitly. You also get hints by the fact that there's like a clock power up that just goes beep, beep, beep when you get it, but it's actually racking up points on your score. Likewise, if you start on, uh, if you start on room nine and go from nine to 15, you're going to rack up less points than if you start at room one and go all the way through. And I'm not even sure if you might be able to get additional points because there are warps in the game that take you back rooms. So I don't know if you get additional points for like recompleting levels because, you know, the notion is you, you could die in those rooms. So, you know, like you're taking on additional risk to try to get a higher score. Um, but I think that the, the game mechanic is really elegant. Uh, and this was one of the games that I definitely, <laughs> hooray, a game that I succeeded at this time. Um, and you know, you, you make it to the end of the game and a, a infamous character is there, the bad cat. It's like the only, uh, the only kind of AI enemy in the game. The other things are static obstacles and these like, I didn't know what they were for a long time. They're these like little Y shapes that fly at you and they're like, 
I guess I, I never really made these. Like you can make like a paper helicopter where it's just got like a narrow strip and then you, like you throw it and it's supposed to you know float gracefully down in a path. Mine never came out right. My gliders never came out right either. I was a dart person. And you can choose the dart, which actually makes the game harder. Uh, that's like another option in the game. You can play as the the dart, which is more like traditional paper airplane. Um, but if you get all the way to the end, there's the one AI character. It's the bad cat. And you have to avoid getting hit by the cat's paw to get out the window and out to freedom and beat the game. <laughs> I didn't play this a whole lot back in the day. I was certainly aware of it. I think maybe even coming over to your house and playing it. Uh, and just to piggyback on something you said, like the thing that always stood out to me about this game were the the sprites and the room details, not only in the fact that they were like very well done pixel art that had a lot of detail, but that they all made sense if like they were to translate to the real world. Like, like you said, the different types of paper airplanes, the way that air vents would in the real world affect the trajectory of a paper airplane or that uh, like a candle you know, that's a serious obstacle for something made out of paper. And I was always very impressed by how well thought out and well produced this game was. It's kind of a masterclass in level design. So there's definitely that. Glider had, so the the version that is recommended is like, it's Glider 3 Plus or something like that. So that's like the latest version of the original Glider. The rest, are, <laughs> up to then, they're kind of like beta versions almost. That's like the final, you know, final patched version. It did go on to spawn more of a franchise. Uh, so version four and then Glider Pro were published by Cassidy and Green. I think there were also Windows ports. These added color, a lot more levels, you know, up to 40, 50 some rooms. Uh, I think eventually they put together a room editor so that you could create your own levels because there were these elegant elements that you could put together, you know, like, you know, we kind of got like, finally we got Mario Maker after 20 some years of Mario. Like, you know how all of these elements work together. You can create your own levels. Maybe you'll make good ones because you've understood the principles of level design that we've taught you, or maybe you'll make terrible ones, hard to say. Um, So this is another one of these franchises that kind of spun out to the wider world. But to me, the original Glider, you know, it was a Mac exclusive, and it's the one that I prize the most. Let's take a a quick kind of tangential detour. Uh, While we're talking about Glider, these original up to version 3 were made and distributed by John Calhoun under his company, Soft Dorothy. And uh, that company also put out a clone of the arcade game Joust that they called Glypha. And uh, this was, of course, like Joust is a great game. Um, It's a great mechanic and it's very simple. And it's a game that you can keep playing for a while. I think the thing for Ed and I, I'm going to speak for you a little bit, that helps stick this game stick in our minds is that Glypha was basically reskinned by Foxtrot uh, creator, writer, illustrator, etc. Bill Amond uh, to be Slugman the video game. So yeah, in the Foxtrot universe, Jason creates a cartoon whose <laughs> the hero is the superhero Slugman and his trusty sidekick Leech Boy. <laughs> And Slugman is a slug who can fly, and the nemesis is uh, his sister, <laughs> in re-envisioned as robots. <laughs> and so those are the sprites that are put into this game. 
the gameplay is totally identical. The engine is completely the same, but I definitely uh, prefer that version. <laughs> and it's it's funny, you know, it's the kind of thing where like that that was done one hundred percent in ResEdit. It's just sprite replacement and sound effect replacement, uh, but it goes from a black and white Joust clone to a totally color weirdly franchise tied <laughs> Joust clone. One of the things about this, though, you know, we're talking about shareware and things like, please send $10 to Avi Tavanyan. Uh, whereas here with, with Glider, perhaps one of the reasons that I think of Glider 3 as the canonical version is that it was, it was straight up shareware, which means just honor system. Like you get the full game, you are asked to pay money via postal service if you like it. And if you're a kid, you're not going to do any of that uh, because you have a, an essentially free game. And so when some of these shareware franchises got picked up by publishers or became larger franchises, they went into the commercial distribution model and you know became scarce in the way that they were supposed to. Like, you have to pay for the game to have a copy of the game. And, you know, of course, some even included copy protection, I think, Shuffle Puck Cafe notoriously has copy protection and like the recommended version that's on the Macintosh Garden. They have three of them. They're like, use this one, which is technically the last beta version, but it doesn't have the copy protection and therefore hasn't had to be patched. And so it actually runs reliably, which is kind of, you know, like that, that's a little bit weird, but that's the way that we have to preserve some of these things. But this category of games that was like true shareware in the late 80s. Since it was 100% on our system, we don't have to do like the patching and the hacking, and it's just available to us now, once again, for free. <laughs> there are definitely things, though, where like occasionally someone, you know, especially if someone is like, you know, wrote a game back in the late 80s, early 90s, and still is kind of part of the community, is like still a developer or something like that, or still easy, easy to find on the internet, you'll see things where, like, someone who's, like, now a productive 30-something adult, like we are, like, gets out a checkbook and, you know, like, writes a $10 check to someone and sends it in the mail. It's like, this is for all the fun I had playing Glider. <laughs> um, and, like, those those pop up from time to time. Those always make me feel good. I feel like I should do that sometime. Maybe, maybe Glider is the one. I definitely registered a copy of Escape Velocity way after... I had been playing it and like going to Serial Surfer to get Captain Hector off my back once I was in college and making money. I was clearing off my grandpa's Performa uh, this past weekend and found several copies of Surfer Serials. Oh, uh, a different time. <laughs> the last uh, little throwback to Classic Mac Gaming that I want to discuss on this show is uh, the World Builder software and I guess platform. And this was an application that made it easy to create kind of like text-based adventure games, those kinds of games where it's like you are in a room, like Zork. Uh, do you want to go north, south, east, or west? Here's your inventory. There's an item that you can pick up. There's an item that you can use. Get lamp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those kinds of games. Uh, and so it was software that made it easy to kind of structure those out, build them in, and also add in a window to like the left of the text terminal with graphics that could be like the room that you're currently in to add sound effects if you wanted 
And I don't know how widespread these became, but there is definitely a whole category on Macintosh Garden of games created with World Builder. And one of them that I never played and didn't play in uh, preparation for this episode is Enchanted Scepters, which is noteworthy because its Wikipedia article or somewhere listed as the first game on the Mac with digitized sound. So that's pretty cool. And it was made using this uh, very beloved in a certain community application. The way I came into world builder created games was on another disc. I'm sure my dad uh, brought home that uh, was called uh, Lucy's worlds. And was by this uh, woman named Louise hope who made just a bunch of games that had uh, some bit of continuity between them uh, continuity in the characters who you were, who your allies were often who you were like trying to find or help. And I remember as like a very young kid getting sucked into this game called The Tower, which uh, has been remastered. And I think there's even a port that will run on current macOS called Grey Tower that added color and obviously the like Unix instead of classic Mac underpinnings. Um, So I'll put links to these in the show notes too. Uh, If you're into that kind of game, I definitely sunk a lot of hours into the specific games created on World Builder by this one developer uh, that I thought were were very intriguing. I'm scrolling through all of these ones that are on the Macintosh Garden, and I will say that the vast majority of them break down into two categories, drawn by a child and deeply disturbing. I mean, I, it seems like a lot of these were going for like horror genre. I mean, I guess that's what makes a, you know, a text adventure exciting. Or drawn by a child, because uh, the software did make it that easy to bundle one of these together and distribute it. These text adventure games uh, definitely have some nostalgia and some staying power. And uh, if you like them in podcast form, if you've never listened to the couple episodes of The Incomparable where they do basically turn-based text adventure games, but via the mechanism of podcast, uh, definitely go check those out. They're some of the funniest podcast episodes I have ever, <laughs> I have ever ever listened to. So there's uh, there's Action Castle. And then there is the Jungle Adventure. I think that one, the episode is called Exits Are Unknown. They get lost, very badly lost. Um, and they're based on like a tabletop version of this. Uh, I forget the name of the publisher, but they have, you know, like, you know, for five bucks, you get a laminated card that's basically a text adventure. It would be, it would be cool to take one of those and reconstruct it in the world builder. Mm-hmm. So I think that takes us to the end of this era in Macintosh gaming, we, we have at the, the bottom of the page here in our notes, like what point does Ambrosia burst onto the scene? And you know, Ambrosia's titles were all color sprite-based titles. Whereas I think one of the defining features of pretty much every game that we talked about here was it at least started in a black and white version and took advantage of the high resolution black and white graphics on the original Mac and, all of the Macs up until the the Mac 2. Ambrosia's first title was Maelstrom, which was released in November of 1992, and we did a little bit on the early history of Ambrosia in our Escape Velocity episode, which was episode 8, and we'll put a link to that in the notes. That said, though, uh, Ambrosia made a cameo appearance on the Internet Archive in one of these titles. Yeah, the Ambrosia uh, often put out a newsletter, 
that was about the the comings and goings of the company. There was, I think there's always a section towards the end about like the, the best bug that they had fixed or had been reported. And uh, it was fun and it was packaged as a like a read-only application. And I off the top of my head, I don't remember what software it was, but a lot of games use this as the as their manuals that were bundled with software instead of like a simple text read-only document. I think it says here that it's called media type. It was these read-only documents that had like a chapter-based uh, mechanism where you could skip around to different sections. And volume one, issue two of the Ambrosia newsletter is part of the Internet Archive's classic Mac emulation collection. Uh, I think the major thing in this newsletter is that their utility Snaps had just been released. Uh, The issue is from September 1994, so it's obviously well after Maelstrom's release. Um, And it it is fun that, like I said, they made a cameo in this collection. Snaps, another title that went on for a long, long run. Uh, I don't think that it's been updated in a couple of years. The latest version on their site of Snaps Pro 10 says that it is compatible with Mavericks. So that, that's not not so far off. They had to do some weird stuff after uh, Lion like basically canned all their kernel extensions. Also, I, I just loaded up this Ambrosia Times in the emulator, and as soon as it boots, you get a dialogue that says, the disc, the Ambrosia Times Volume 1, Issue 2, needs minor repairs. Do you want to repair it? <laughs> HFS! Thing. That is a great place to wrap up that the this collection of software, and specifically games, kind of takes us from the very early first days of the Mac right up until... Uh, Ambrosia Software starts getting on the scene and releasing those games that anyone from that era would identify with uh, as huge time sinks. If any of these games sounded interesting, you do check them out. The ones that we talked about that are on the Internet Archive are, of course, playable right in your browser. And the rest of them are available on the Macintosh Garden if you have an emulator or old hardware setup. Yeah, I learned a few new emulator tricks just trying to get some of those titles running. So a bunch of them, uh, they were they were .img.sit files, and so I could I could I, this this sounds really dumb. I had to put them into the emulator to expand the stuff at archive, and then I got a .img file that you can't mount in the emulator because it doesn't know what the heck to do with a .img file. So I have to take that in OS ten. And if you double click it, it says this is a legacy image format that has to be updated. So I had to go to the terminal and convert the image from an IMG to DMG, expand it in OS X, and then put it back into my emulator. Bit of a multi-step process, but it does work, as is always the case with emulation. Except when the Internet Archive does all the heavy lifting for you. So many, many thanks to them. Uh, because we know that people who are listeners to our show might be dedicated enough to go out and do this. But, you know, some of the numbers on the you know, number of people who've played Dark Castle in the past three weeks, uh, you know, it's got like 40,000 hits on it or something. And, you know, we know that that's like a far bigger community getting back into this stuff. Um, and that's really exciting for us. So yes, definitely there will be links to the Internet Archive and then also Macintosh Garden for all these other titles that we talked about in our show notes, which as always you can find at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also get in touch with us if there's a game we didn't cover 
from this collection or from this era using the contact form on our website or on Twitter at simple underscore beep. Yeah, you can send us all of your pro tips on how to not be terrible at Dark Castle. Yes, please do. (laughs) (laughs) You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.